We are the guardians of peace and justice. Beyond the stars is a near endless frontier. Our order was meant to shine its light in even the darkest corners of the galaxy. There, we found an evil that none of us had trained for, that threatens all we know. For the survival of the Republic, the fate of all Jedi, for control of the Force itself. Welcome everyone from across the universe to the Wampa's Lair Podcast. Star Wars is for everyone, so pull up a chair, get comfortable, and join the conversation with your hosts, Carl LeClaire and Jason Hunt, here in the Wampa's Lair. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another exciting episode of the Wampa's Lair podcast. This is episode number 411, Light of the Jedi. I'm, as always, one of your hosts, Jason Hunt, and with me, the loading great storm to my bells at afar, we have Carl LeClaire. Oh, Jason, that's such a great comparison, especially if you've read Light of the Jedi. If you haven't, you're like, who the hell are they? Don't you worry. You should find out about them by reading the book because it's phenomenal. Yeah. Um, but yeah. Jason, we are certainly not alone to discuss Star Wars literature. We've got your buddy and mine, the one and only Ion Cannon, Sir Gregory Cass. Good evening, Wampa's Lair. Good evening, Jason and Carl. Thanks so much for asking me on. Um, I think as soon as I finish this book or maybe even when i finished the first chapter i was like carl i need to talk about this book carl i need to talk about this book so uh begging and pleading works if you want to be on the wampa's lair you too could get here (laughs) i mean it has nothing to do with the fact that you've been on the show before and that you live in the same city as carl right now nothing nothing (laughs) oh my goodness so uh, as you can guess we are going to talk all sorts of stuff about the the new High Republic novel by Charles Sewell, Light of the Jedi. We will be sharing spoilers. So if you've not read the book and you want to read the book, you may not want to listen to this episode. Maybe come back after you've um, read the story. If you've not read it and you don't care about spoilers, feel free to listen ahead. Um, I don't know how well we're not going to do like a scene by scene breakdown, but we're just going to talk about things that really stood out to us. But that being said, that's what we're going to do in this episode. So hopefully you'll you'll stick around for all of this wonderful conversation that I know we're going to have. But before we get into that, of course, we had a very epic matchup 
last week. Uh, well, from two weeks ago. Obviously, last week we had uh, Savannah on the show, which was just awesome. I loved having her on. Um, but uh, we asked, we we wanted to make something really hard for all of you. Uh, so we picked two of the most epic scenes that Disney Star Wars has given us, which is of course Darth Vader's hallway scene at the end of Rogue One against Luke Skywalker's hallway scene at the end of season two of Mandalorian. And Jason, there was so much response to this one. What did folks come down with on here? Oh, man, uh, it was a lot. Um, of course, folks, these are our responses on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. So if you only responded on one of those things, you might be like, what? I, I don't understand. It was very much in favor of this one scene over here, but not over there. So... Um, this is the combined totals that we have of those three places. Um, Vader's scene in Rogue One came away with 74 votes, whereas Luke's scene in The Mandalorian came away with 59, according to the Larians. So about a 15-point spread, uh, but still very high scoring for both of them. Um, mm. I'm very excited about how how big the response was on this matchup. Uh, but, you know... Greg, you're you're the guest on the show here. Um, I gotta throw it at you first. Um, which one? Which one do you want? Uh, what do you prefer? Which scene do you prefer? Wow. Oh, so I I'm somebody who always votes on Twitter and Instagram. So now with an in person vote, I'm really stacking uh, the ballot box. Uh, but I will say it apparently it apparently doesn't matter. uh i was on i was on team luke um you know at the end of the day my fandom is much more on the light side i'm not a a dark side sith guy i don't do the troopers or anything so um i you know had to vote um for luke and uh you know just remembering the 4 30 a.m viewing of that scene where i was sitting alone on my living room floor um fist pumping the air and just like so psyched uh every minute of that was exciting and and well earned my vote uh no shade on the end of rogue one i think that is a, a killer moment but i had to go luke what about you, Carl? So that's three votes from Greg for Luke. Um, <laughs> so that brings us down to 56 to 70. <laughs> um, so actually, you know, uh, I, I probably like so many folks, I went back and forth, back and forth. But I think at the end of the day, I got to go with Luke. Um, mainly because uh, kind of like you were just saying, Greg, that just kind of that visceral reaction to seeing it. Um, I didn't really expect it. Uh, and like you, like I much prefer watching a Jedi to a Sith. So just seeing Luke be that powerful legend Luke that he obviously references several times in Last Jedi, the one that he obviously walks away from, um, I think was just really neat to get to see that. And something that I noticed a few people pointed out on Twitter, and this this is honestly what swayed me the, the final way was the music. Um, I so prefer the music there in that scene with Luke than I do the Rogue One music. And it's no shade on the Rogue One music. It's not like it's bad. It's just the the Luke music is so epic. Um, and being such a huge fan of Star Wars music, that's what swayed me. Um, and I also feel like the Darth Vader scene is like kind of like this nice little epilogue to Rogue One. Like I don't feel at the end of the day that it makes the movie that much better because Rogue One is just such a good, powerful movie that that was just like icing on the cake. So it's really cool. I love it. But I think... Luke just had a bigger impact for me in, in the story and that it was his character. So that's where I come down. So now we can bring it back up to 57. <laughs> there we go. Uh, where did you, where'd you land on it? 
Well, um, I, I'm making it unanimous here on the podcast. Uh, it, <laughs> so, um, yeah, I the the Darth Vader moment was was definitely an unexpected shock. However, the anticipation and knowing that it was Luke and finally getting to see Luke do what he did in the Mandalorian was just, I I'd wanted to see that for so long. Um, more than, uh, more than Vader, you know, I, Vader's always been a fun character to me, but he's never been one of my favorites. And like you, Greg, I'm all, I'm definitely more on the light side than the dark side, unless you're talking Palpatine or Dooku, because then <laughs> I just love those characters and those actors but that's neither here nor there um <laughs> uh so i i'm i'm very much uh biased in this regard uh which is why i'm super excited to talk about the book um that we are talking about tonight because jedi yes hello so luke skywalker mm-hmm. by far for me um was was my favorite of these two scenes so um so if we're going to take away two of Greg's votes uh, <laughs> and add our two votes into that, Carl. Uh, brings the, it back to where it was. Actually, that brings it up to 60. <laughs> oh, sorry. Uh, <laughs> uh, 60 votes uh, here for Luke Skywalker and 74 for Rogue One. However, if we just want to leave it as is, it's 62 to 74. So uh, whichever way you want to count, folks. So, <laughs> excellent. Either way, Vader still won. So, um, <laughs> that's so we good. Got, we got a fun uh, poll for you at the end of the uh, the episode here, folks. So stay tuned for that. Um, Carl, you uh, you had something else that you wanted to announce, real quick. Yeah, real quick. We uh, we had a poll go. Not excuse me, not a poll, but a giveaway. Uh, this this particular pr- prize, courtesy of. Uh, Sir Greg, who's with us tonight. Um, like I said a while back, Greg shared a few Funko Pops. He wanted to kind of shed his collection of. Um, so uh, our first giveaway from that collection of Greg's was uh, a Boba Fett and great looking Boba Fett taking off on his jetpack. And we have a winner. So the winner of the Funko Pop Boba Fett goes to Jack Darth Snips on Twitter. So Jack, if you are if you are listening, reach out to us. Uh, and just send us your mailing address and I will get that sent to you right away. Um, if I don't hear from you in the next few days, that means either you don't listen to the show or you just haven't heard it yet. So in which case I'll get in touch with you, (laughs) but all the same, uh, thank you for everyone who participated, who retweeted, who shared it. Uh, we, we really appreciate it. Um, and we've got another, I was, I was, I was just going to say, I was tagged and I could not believe how many entries you were getting because everybody who retweeted, retweeted me included. I was like, wow, I'm really popular on Twitter this week. And then I realized it was my Funko Pop. But uh, congrats to the winner and enjoy it. <laughs> yeah, It's not you, Greg. It's the Funko. No. Um, <laughs> um, I still I still sit over here with all my Hasbro three and three quarter and six inch figures and go, why is Funko so popular? I don't get it. But it is. Yeah. Uh, it's everywhere. Yeah. So I got my thing. But yeah. I'm glad people love it because we get to give it away. Right. <laughs> right. Um, and, we'll, you know, uh, I've acquired quite a few giveaways for the upcoming uh, weeks and m- months ahead. So we have another giveaway to uh, offer up at the end of the episode. So just stick around for the end of the show for both that as well as our new poll. 
Um, but without further ado, let's get into the High Republic, my friends. Um, I, just maybe start with just initial reactions. What was your thoughts your first time um, visiting this book? Uh, just just very general. You don't have to get into any specifics just yet. Um, um, the High Republic, Light of the Jedi. I was so excited. Like, it didn't matter that this was all new characters. Um, it was a brand new Star Wars adventure, and it felt like Star Wars. Uh, and it explored an area that I think, you know, publishing and and sort of Star Wars in general has kind of gone away from recently uh, in terms of, you know, the, the Jedi, heavy in the Jedi lore and stuff like that, which is what I've always really enjoyed, which is why the prequels and the Clone Wars in particular is one of my favorite eras in Star Wars. Um, and so just getting this story set in an even grander heyday of the Jedi than we've ever seen before was just incredible. I, I was giddy and excited and eating up every single word I listened to the entire way through. It was, it was so great. Uh, mine is like, I, uh, because I, I'm a huge fan of Charles soul. I've loved his runs on all the star Wars comics back to the Poe Dameron title, which he uh, spearheaded. Um, and I'm, I, uh, was very privileged to receive preview copies of the Disney books one. So I had Justina Ireland's and Claudia Gray's books, I believe the beginning of October, um, but never got a copy of Light of the Jedi. So I was like dying to fill in um, because, you know, it's absolutely true. You can read these in any order, but I think you're better off if Light of the Jedi comes first. Um, and I was waiting and waiting and waiting. Um, I had been tracking Project Luminous since the very first announcements. Everybody they have involved is outstanding talent. Um, and so it was, you know, so wonderful that it delivered, that I wasn't disappointed in any way. Um, I think there used to be this uh, line of Star Wars action figures called Unleashed, right? And they were epic kind of statue quality versions of characters. Well, to me, this feels like Star Wars publishing Unleashed. It's like, you know, so often the books and the comics are just in support of the films, as they should be, right? Um, But they've been so tied down by what they could or could not say that they can't touch the post-Return of the Jedi moment. So just to see these books come out and they say, let's go 200 years earlier and let's just be totally unfettered by anything else and do whatever we want um, was really exciting to me. And and I think it's, it is, like you said, Jason, very much Star Wars. And yet at the same time, it's just different enough, just weird enough to make it feel really fresh and new in exciting ways. Definitely. What, what about you, Carl? Yeah, I mean, I'll just continue to to laud it as the two of you have. Um, it's it just blew my mind. You know, uh, I was fortunate enough that I, I I borrowed Greg's copy of Claudia Gray's um, Into the Dark, which I just loved. I ate it up. I think I read it in three days or something. Um, and uh, I'm looking forward to talking about that next month when it's officially released. Um, but uh, yeah, this book. Um, I'll just start by saying this. I can't remember the last time I finished reading a novel and then immediately started it again and read through it a second time, twice in a row. This is the first book I've done that with probably since some other random Star Wars book from when I was a kid. 
Um, that's how much I liked it. And um, I unfortunately, I had to travel last week um, because my partner lost a family member. So I was driving to New Jersey, and luckily I filled that time by listening to the book thanks to Jason's Audible account. So I've I've listened to the book and I've read it twice. Um, and I, I simply say that to say how much I have enjoyed it. I think Charles Soule's ability to write Star Wars um, is top top tier by far. Um, any of you who follow us on social media have probably seen over the last several months. Um, I think because of how just exhausting the pandemic has been, I've been reading a lot of old Star Wars Legends books just for fun. And they are fun. But um, I said this to Greg and our friend Ben. It's like the old Legends books are like listening to Nickelback. Like, I love them. They're so fun. They're really catchy. But then you read this new era stuff, and it's like listening to John Williams conduct. Like, it's just a totally different experience. And as any of you know who've listened a long time, I love Nickelback. So this is not me throwing shade. It's just saying a difference of taste. Um, and I think what Charles Soule brings to Star Wars writing, and Claudia Gray as well with Into the Dark, um, it's just... I, I feel for the characters. I, and more than anything, what light of the Jedi blew me away with is, um, I would often finish a chapter, close the book and just close my eyes and visualize the scenes that he was painting with words. And I can't say that I've had that experience with a lot of, uh, novels in general, let alone star Wars books. So it felt so cinematic. Um, and like you were saying, Jason, this is my favorite stuff of star Wars, the force, the Jedi, that's what draws me in. And that's what it essentially was for 400 pages. And it was awesome. I do want to make a a point uh, because I I've listened to this. I don't have the, um, the, the physical copy. I've listened to it twice on audible uh, and Mark Thompson. Oh yeah. Just, he is the top tier narrator in star Wars. He's, he's, you know, I've, I've listened to a lot of star Wars books. He is the best. Um, and I say that without putting any shame on any of the other narrators out there, but Mark Thompson is the best because he is very good at getting the intensity of the scene while making all of the characters very distinctive in and of themselves, whether it's speech patterns, you know, different accents, voices, things like that, which is important in a book like this because everyone is new. Mm-hmm. You have no familiar characters. Yoda is mentioned like twice, but he's never there. So, um, but yeah, so it's, it's been really incredible listening to it. Um, and, and there were moments where I had to stop and like take a minute because there were some very intense scenes and a scene I even teared up at. So, mm. uh, just listening to it and it's just beautiful. It's so good. Yeah. Um, Please so, do yourself a favor and, and read it or listen to it if you haven't, because it's, it's very, very good. Jason, I want to ask you really quick, um, and yeah. I, I don't not mean to ask you, Greg, but you you haven't listened to it. Um, so <laughs> a lot of times the Star Wars audiobooks, I think what they do very well is you know they put in sometimes sound effects or music from the Star Wars movies. There was music in this audiobook, but most of it did not sound familiar to me. Do you know if right. they did they do their own music or was, were they drawing from maybe like old video games? That I just have not. I, I just I, there was obviously certain points where there was quintessential Star Wars music, but there was a lot of scenes as they played out. There was music in the background. I'm like, I don't recognize this at all. And I, and I really liked that, but I wasn't sure if maybe they composed some of their own music. Um, I know I made that call, shout out on Twitter. Like, I wish I wish we'd get like a High Republic soundtrack like we got for Shadows of the Empire. Um, but uh, do you do you know where that music may have come from? I 
don't, although I I suspect um, that a, 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 you know, Penguin Random House uh, who puts together the audiobooks and everything like that has their own library of music okay. uh, for various audiobooks and things like that. So I'm I'm assuming that, you know, some of that is coming from their library. Uh, while I would love to say, oh, yeah, they compose new music for the audiobook. I don't think that's the case, uh, but I've not seen anything saying yes or no to that. I, I have been, I wanted to look, but I haven't had the chance to just, I've been very, very busy the last week and haven't had the time to sit down and look that up. But I don't think that's the case because I feel like they would have announced that. Uh, cause that's a big deal for us. Star Wars fans is the music. Um, but my guess is it's probably just stuff that they have in their library from other properties or other, you know, just kinds of, uh, emotional or mood, yeah. Music. They that have. makes sense. Interesting. Cool. So, but they do have some Star Wars stuff and, yeah, and it's sure. used judiciously and well. So, yeah, it, um, it definitely is. Um, um, when you guys are talking about how many characters there are and how it is a little tough to, to tell them apart, I just want to put in a plug for, to me, I, I'm going to stay mainly on the positive because I don't have a lot of negatives, but that is probably the hardest part of this book is mm. tracking all the characters. But a huge yeah. help is Kevin Scott's uh, Great Jedi Rescue book, which is a kid's book. It's like 20 pages i think um and it's five dollars um and they have art that shows you all the characters and so i oh. found that extremely helpful that was actually I, my light of the jedi arrived late so i read the kevin scott one first um and uh it was just really helpful you get great stickers of buryaga and uh, mickle and avar too so if anybody is having that trouble and it's especially if you're thinking of quitting for that reason pick up that book because it really helps that's really helpful because yeah. well, yeah, I, you, you and Ben had sent me that resource that what the force put together with some of the character names. Um, I also, you know, random Instagram accounts, one of the artists I follow, he did his own art print of all the characters. So that's, I, I went back to that a lot. Cause I will definitely say specifically the first read through I did, I was like, these are a lot of characters. Um, and, yeah. uh, yeah, so that with you, Greg, I think that was the only quote negative maybe to the book was that was a little hard to f- kind of get your feet into. Um, but I think it's because they're opening this world, and I think there's going to be a lot of side adventures as we continue into the to the saga. That being said, I found both Into the Dark and Justine Ireland's book um, much easier because it's a much smaller cast of characters, um, so it's easier to follow mm-hmm. in that regard. But. And that is something to say about this book, Light of the Jedi, is that it is sort of a grand world-establishing book. Um, while it does follow certain characters at certain points, it jumps back and forth between different groups of people um, quite a bit. Um, and it's, it's definitely establishing the, the galaxy as it is 200 years before The Phantom Menace and who the players are and what is going on in this new era of of turmoil that they are starting here um so that is what this book is so just if you haven't read it and you're going to read it uh just be aware it's it's a lot of information uh but this is basically the the foundation that i believe everything moving forward is going to be based on so yeah um so 
just to get the conversation going, I, I, I know we don't want to talk through the plot because that's, you know, if anybody that's read it, you read it. Um, but I just want to do, I do want to say like the way the, the book opens and specifically part one, right? So the book is broken into those three parts, part one being the great disaster and, you know, this very epic, uh, tragic event really. Um, and, uh, I, I, I know I don't think that either of you I know for a fact Greg you have not but the Expanse series um is one of my favorite book series of all time um it's a show on Amazon right now um but the Expanse one of the highlights of that book series is the books all fly like they're they're long books but they just fly like the pacing is so fast and I felt like specifically part 1 of Light of the Jedi mirrored that so well like it's just such a fast read the chapters are relatively shorter which i personally like because i just feel like i'm making more headway when i'm like oh i'm on chapter 28 already um you might only be on page 150 but it's like hey i'm making progress um you know and the way the book just opens with this you know the great disaster happening and the legacy run being torn apart um what by this mysterious force that we don't really meet until later in the book um I just it really gave me a, a a new hope vibe, like just the way that movie just opens with a bang. Right. I mean, it opens with this awesome epic shot. You have this great battle going on. I felt like Light of the Jedi really captured that element of Star Wars to just it just put its hooks in you right away with this exciting opening. Yeah, no, it really did. Um, go ahead, Greg. Well, I, I was going to, yeah, I was going to completely agree. And I think there are two elements for me that just uh, really underscored that. The first being there's a literal ticking clock, right? The mm. chapters begin and say, you know, 10 hours until five hours until four hours until, um, and where there's going to be, I mean, the cataclysm is going on the whole time, but where it's really going to just be at all lost because the hyper fuel will hit the suns. Um, you just feel that pacing and that danger. And then the second one is the fact that you jump into a chapter and especially for the first like five to eight or so, you meet some new characters. And in a lot of cases, you're like trying to figure out who they are, get attached to them. And then they're dead by the end of the chapter. Um, And so it kind of keeps you on your toes guessing like, is this somebody who mattered? I I mean, every life matters. How un-Jedi of me after saying (laughs) I was on the late side. Uh, But um, like, is this somebody I need to track or is this somebody who's going to check out by the end of the chapter and and that's a freedom that not being in canon gives you in his interview with um i think with star wars explained um charles soul said like the problem with writing luke is you know where luke is in his journey at every moment and Mm. you know that he can't die because we've seen him 20 years from now and the complete freedom here to just do whatever you want is just astounding and makes me really worried that come books three four five we could be losing some of these characters we already love because we don't, it'll be real tension. It'll be real suspense. So. Yeah, definitely. I think, yeah, I think, um, and even the way both the first two chapters by giving us, uh, Hedda Cassett and then, um, the tech supervisor person in chapter two, I can't remember that character's name, but they both felt like right from the beginning. It's like, they gave you a sense of who these characters were. They gave you an, an understanding of their history, an understanding of their hopes and dreams. And then they just fall apart by the end of the chapters, each subsequent chapter. Yep. And you're just like, that's some damn good writing. Like I, especially had a cassette, like I really liked her character. And then I was like, Oh damn, she's dead <laughs> on page 20 or something <laughs> like, Holy crap. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
you know, um, I liked her because she was my family member, a Cass. I was like, <laughs> oh yeah, I'm in Star Wars now. And then not so much. <laughs> she was gone. Um, yeah, but and and it works really effectively. I, I mean, like you're saying, that's some really skillful writing to create a character that feels rich in that moment, and then you feel the loss five pages later. Um, but then, and, and I also want to say, then there's the little surprise where one of the children shows back up and yeah. survives, right? Yeah. So, so you also get that that it's not just total bleak uh, loss. It, it does some of them survive who aren't Jedi, and, and they grow across the book. So. Yeah. Um, if you don't mind, the the main part of the book that I loved the most, and I, I'd love to get both of your takes on this as well, is just who the Jedi are in the High Republic as as Light of the Jedi kind of sets them up. And I think one of the biggest things that stood out to me that we learned relatively early in the novel is that there are multiple Jedi temples. Um, and I know that that's clearly been alluded to, like Rebels, obviously there's a temple on Lothal. Um, but just, we never really get a clear sense of it until Light of the Jedi. Light of the Jedi, it's very clear that you have all these different temples throughout the galaxy. Coruscant is obviously where the, the, the high council resides. It's where kind of all the big decisions are made. Um, it's kind of the, the head honcho of the temples, but it's really neat that there are all these multiple temples and something that's pointed out later in the book is that where each temple is located takes on the culture in which it finds itself. So I love how they reference the Jedi temple on Mon Cala is partly underwater. It's, you know, it's part of the Mon Cala atmosphere. The temple on Kashyyyk is built into one of the worship trees or however you pronounce the names of those trees. But um, I just thought it was so cool. And obviously the one on Alfrona is built into the side of a, of a mountain. Um, like I just, I loved this aspect of how the Jedi are so symbiotic, both with its relationship with the Republic, as well as like the cultures of the galaxy. Um, which I feel like, again, like what's so fun to, I, I inevitably was doing this throughout so much of the book is comparing them to the Jedi of the prequels, um, and how much the prequel Jedi have fallen from this high Republic. Um, but I don't know what were kind of some of your, you know, just general thoughts on how the Jedi are presented in this book. Go ahead, Greg. Um, so I, I really enjoy what you just said as well. Um, this idea. Um, so in the big author's talk about um, this this event, I think it was on the January 4th, the day before these books came out, they said there are two references for this period were the two Camelots from history. Hmm. So there's King Arthur Camelot with the Knights of the Round Table. Um, and then there's um, JFK Camelot, right, which is kind of this golden age of America and, you know, always a limited sense of American greatness. There was always people excluded. But this kind of, you know, beauty that was that was reigning over the center part of the century before the kind of darkness and discord of the 60s took over. I'm not a history professor. Um, but to me, that speaks a lot to what you're saying is when there are people who um, erroneously uh, demean the Phantom Menace, what they often talk about is that's not what the Jedi are supposed to be. Um, and I think if you were to ask George, George would say, yeah, that's that's not what they're supposed to be, right? Like, <laughs> they are already fallen by that time. And I think he was very savvy to, to put them where he put them. He put them at the edge of their collapse, which means they are 
too attached to dogma. They are just arrogant, right? Um, you, you know, Mace Windu says it's a, a flaw in, in more and more Jedi, right? And that's Attack of the Clones, I think. Um, so yeah. it, it's to me, it's so beautiful to actually get the Jedi that I always fantasized about. The purely good, not not like superheroes, but, you know, at the peak of their powers and and yes maybe an individual will make a mistake but they're they're really showing us um the power that this path can take and that this light can take um so yeah so you mentioned the temples and i'll just add the one we spend time at is this outpost on um you you forna you for yeah El- uh, Elfona, uh, which I believe appeared in the Rise of Kylo Ren about this time last year. Very sneaky, Charles oh, Soul, because oh, cool. you wrote that. Uh, you, I think Kylo and his, he had a confrontation with the Knights of Ren here. Um, so, uh, or I guess it would have been Ben and the Knights of Ren at that point. Oh my gosh, I just a million Raylos just got very angry out there on the <laughs> internet. I'm so sorry. I forget the line when he turns from Ben to Kylo, but I respect when he turns from Kylo back to Ben. I'm so sorry. Um, so uh, yeah, anyway, so uh, that one makes me think very much about frontier westerns, and I know we've get, mm. got a lot of westerns from Mandalorian, western vibes from the Mandalorian, but it's very much like we are the soldiers stationed out at the edge of what is known, and we're gonna be the sheriffs in this in this small town and they can do uh, to help these settlers and that spirit is not something i i usually attach to star wars it's more of a firefly thing mm-hmm. um but it totally works and it, especially going earlier here in the timeline i think it, it makes it make a lot of sense yeah yeah um, I, for me, the, the Jedi in this era are, are, it's, it's fantastic. It's great to see them, uh, because they do have a bit more of an autonomous, uh, nature to them. Um, they work with the Republic. They work with the Chancellor's office, but their assistance is, uh, requested and they are not necessarily expected to be beholden mm-hmm. to the Republic. Um, however, uh, as, as I'm sure this is deliberate, I am seeing things where the Jedi and the Republic are really kind of linking up very closely together in this book that will lead us to where we get to in The Phantom Menace, where they are attached at the hip and almost one is subservient to the other. The Jedi is subservient to the Republic and, you know, doing the policing of the Republic at that point. Um you know, so it is. It's it's clever, uh, but it's done in a in a way that is supposed to be very good and noble and all this stuff. But good and noble things can always be turned on its head if someone else comes into power uh, and and wants to take advantage of that. So uh, it'll be interesting to see how if they get into that later on in the series, uh, more specifically. But uh, I do love the. The notion that the Jedi are, are very much their own sort of autonomous thing. They're working hand in hand, but not beholden to the Republic, um, which I think is, is a very important and key distinction to what we see in the prequels. Um, but I also see where the, the connections and the, the links are being made that will ultimately lead them to where they get to be in, uh, in The Phantom Menace. Yeah. And that Link's name is Yariel Poof. 
That's right. <laughs> I was so excited when he showed up. I was like, oh, I didn't know he was that old. Uh, he, he and Opo Rancisis uh, are also the, yeah. And I, I think I'm correct in that they both disappear by Attack of the Clones. At least Yariel yeah. Poof does. Yariel Poof does. Uh, Opo is still on the council in Attack of the Clones. Okay. Uh, and in, um, briefly in uh, the Clone Wars. Uh, right, he slithers because yes, he, he moves in. Yeah. Well, and so it, that makes me, it, it made me kind of sad to, that he kind of died, Yariel Poof, that is, seems to have died off screen or retired off screen between films. And, and we only briefly saw the end of his great reign on the Jedi Council. Yeah. He's a low-hanging well, fan. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I like how in the book they even mention when he, because when he first comes to meet with um, Chancellor Lena So, they, they they make a mention of how his head just kind of bobs back and forth as he talks, like as he does in the movie. Um, yes. <laughs> but so obviously something that it, we're introduced to in Light of the Jedi in regards to the Jedi is this character Porter Angle and what a Jedi can do kind of in their retirement years, right? Yes. We get this understanding um, and going back to um, – a conversation I was having uh, with our friend Jim after the finale of Mandalorian because right everybody's like, oh, Grogu obviously dies when Kylo destroys the Luke's temple. And it's like, no, that doesn't mean anything. That was 25 years later. Um, but all that to say, like Jim was like, you know, I think something that we in fandom don't do a great job of is we see a character on screen and then later on in timeline they're not there. So we just automatically assume they're dead. And he's like, you know, and I think something that Rebels kind of push the envelope on is this reality that like characters can disappear without dying, um, you know, and I loved this idea of Porter Angle, who was one of my favorite characters in the book, this kind of retired Jedi there on Elfrana, um, who is just loving it. He becomes like he essentially becomes a cook, like his skills with the force. Yeah, yeah, I'll use them when I need to, but I want to perfect my cooking skills. Like, I love this notion that Jedi can be something. Nine egg soup. Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> the, the fact that they can go into an existence that's, in a way, if you think about it, a little bit more peaceful than always having to be involved with intergalactic affairs. And and after reading about his character, I'm like, maybe that's where Yariel Poof went after Phantom Menace. You know, his time <laughs> on the council had run its course. It was time to move on to, yeah. I don't know, uh, kite flying. I feel like that might be his jam. So, I mean, <laughs> oh, uh, and uh, of interesting note, uh, Yoda is not on the Jedi Council at this point. He is taking a sabbatical. Right. But he is uh, on it. He yeah. is on what? it. But he, he is on the council. He's just on sabbatical. Yeah, he's on sabbatical. So yeah, he's now he's not actively serving on the council. Someone has taken his seat for the time being. Uh, I, but yeah, he is on sabbatical and is training younglings. I will say that was the only other negative to it. I didn't like that he was on the council. It's like, does he have to be on the council for f- over two hundred years? Like that <laughs> that felt a little much to me. It's fine. I don't care. It took nothing away. But what was it? I mean, that's right. You texted me and you said, oh, you know, I want him to be on the council, but I don't want to grant him the rank of master at this time. <laughs> I mean, he's um, 700 years old at this point. I mean, why wouldn't he be, you know, on the council? That's totally valid. Yeah, no, it's it's fine. But I, I knew we were going to hear about him and he pops up twice in the in mostly in mentions. Um, but I was like, oh, does he have to be on the council already? Um, that was so, the only uh, thing. He's on a sabbatical in order to have his own comic book series, right? So he is the star oh, of okay. DJ Older's 
um, kind of, uh, it's an IDW comic series. So that's usually pitched towards all ages, a little less adult, uh, a little less violent. Um, and so I believe he's going to be on a ship with a bunch of younglings and that's all we know. Um, but he did pop up in the comic too. And it, it was this kind of weird moment where I, especially in the comic, it's like, I'm at my college hanging out, meeting new people. And suddenly somebody from my high school walks in like, what are you doing here? buddy?" <laughs> like, <laughs> I don't know you anymore. I'm somebody different now. Um, but uh, it's interesting. And um, again, in I believe the Star Wars Explained interview, Charles Soule made specific mention that Jabba would also be alive at this time. Yeah. Um, and that's curious to me. I, I didn't realize huts were that long lived. Uh, and, and Chewbacca would be just born. Yeah, well, Maybe. in, in Maybe. Legends canon, Chewbacca would have been around, but they kind of re-aged him in Solo and made him 190, right. so he actually wouldn't be alive at this time. So, no, that's true. So, so by phase still got three, maybe. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he's, got another 30, he's got another 30 years before he's born, because he's 200 right. in A New Hope, so. Yeah. Yeah. Um, cool. um yeah. Well, I'll just pick up the Porter Engel. He was yeah. my favorite character. Um, oh, nice. There were a couple of moments with him. Um, I'm going to put Carl to sleep and talk Jason's language for a moment. But what it reminded me the most of was the 50th anniversary Doctor Who special. And the moment when Matt Smith says, I would be a great crea- curator. And yes. Tom Baker walks in and says, you know, I think you might. Um, yes. And yes. it's so beautiful, this idea that maybe somewhere down the line at the end of Doctor Who's time, uh, he just goes through his old lives and does little jobs like being a museum create, curator yeah. or or a gardener or things like that. So that's what it made me feel like this this kind of hopeful note that maybe this character we love so much like has this happy ending this this twilight. So I I, I will join you, Carl, if you can wake back up, uh, and uh, I will say hopefully that's what Yariel Poof happened um, or happened with him. Um, my favorite moment with Porter Engel is, um, you know, there's a confrontation between the Nile and the Jedi on that planet. And they're giving chase. And there's this moment where one of the Niles shoots out one of the, the mounts. I forget what Steals. the mounts are called. Steals. Yes. Yeah. The, and when he does that, he gives this moment where he's like, well, now I understand who you are and now you will receive no mercy. Um, and to me, I was, you know, I was just like, yes, let's do this. Um, because it, it felt like one of those great moments from a movie, again, a cinematic moment where the hero is like, well, we got to give peace a chance. And then it's like, nope, you don't deserve it. You you haven't earned that we're going on now. So that was one of my favorite moments in the book. Yeah, it, the, well, that was a good one. That, ch- that chasing and... and um, as I've said several times over the years, you know, chase scenes in general just aren't my thing. Um, and especially reading them is even less exciting to me. But this one really worked for me, um, mainly because, again, uh, Charles Sewell's ability to just write such visceral language. The the notion that this planet – it and it's, I'll say this too. Like the planets we're already getting in High Republic feels so Star Warsy. That's still my only big complaint about Mandalorian is every planet they go to just looks like a different – temperate zone of earth um like there's nothing very sci-fi about it but alfrona really feels that way it's this planet of essentially like metallic rock and stone and the the steel mounts they actually have these metal hooves because they've adapted to survive on this planet and we get this beautiful scene of them charging after the nile 
And we were told that there's all these sparks flying up. It's like, I can see that. And obviously there has been that art print done as like kind of this alternate book cover. So yes, there has been a visual of it, but I feel like I could even visualize it without that picture. Just these, you know, these heroic Jedi riding their horses against the marauders. Um, and, and like you were saying, Greg, like a Western story. Um, Oh, it's so cool. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, that was, it was a great moment to a great uh, scene too. And then of course he he's saved by uh, Ember, the, yes. the adopted. Um, <laughs> That's the, my that favorite character outpost. from uh, light of the Jedi is Ember, the rescue, <laughs> the rescue char hound. Um, it's so cool. Like, and I will say this, um, my, my relationship with Twitter has very much ebbed and flowed over the years, but one thing, and, and Greg often points this out to, to both myself and our friend, Ben, there is such an incredible feeling you get when a creator from Star Wars comments on something you put. Um, and after reading about Ember and really, you know, you get that brief story about how he kind of showed up at the the Jedi outpost there, malnutritioned, and they just took him in. I mean, he's literally a rescue pet. And obviously, I have a rescue cat. Um, I have several friends with rescue dogs. Like, I was like, this is so cool. Rescue pets are now canon. And and I tagged that on Twitter and Charles Soul commented back. And it just, it just it gave such a warm feeling to my heart. Um, so, <laughs> you know, it, it Ember yeah. is such a cool character, you know, like that. It, I think something Star Wars has always done very well is it does in a lot of ways feel like it can be our world, even though it's a fantastical world and something like a rescue pet is something so many of us have in our own homes. So it was really cool getting, uh, um, Ember brought into it and he spits fire. Like that's so cool. (laughs) He's like a mini dragon. (laughs) Yeah, that was pretty cool. Um, gosh, I, I want to say though, um, the one scene that really like got to me that I had to like pause my audiobook and take a minute because I was starting to choke up uh, is in part one and it has nothing to do with any of the Jedi characters, mm. um, which surprised me. Um, but it was uh, Captain Finial Bright and mm. his sacrifice um, with the, the uh, orbital station that was getting ready to explode um, after you know, they, they went on to try and find survivors after got hit by one of the emergences. Um, and you know, he, he's sending his other team out to, to, you know, to leave and he's there. And, uh, just the, the scene between him and, uh, what's his, um, Peavis? No, 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 no. uh, Inamin. Inamin. Yeah. yeah. Inamin. Petty officer Inamin. Um, you know, it, and it's peoples, by the way, not Peavis. <laughs> <laughs> it's not Peavis, putthead. Um, no. <laughs> uh, no, but yeah, his uh, his you know conversation with with uh, Petty Officer Inman uh, and everything right before he, he he sacrifices himself to save all of them and all of the surviving crew of this orbital station. Um, the the voice acting of Mark Thompson, the music that they used in the audio book, you know, I'm picturing all of this going on in my head. It's, it's very cinematic the way that it's the audio book is done. Um, so it was, it was very, very impressive that it 
it all came together like that. And it, it was just beautiful the way that it, it went down. So, um, well, I'm sure it helps say that, that, um, Captain Bright is the same species as your boy, Kit Fisto. So, I, I mean, <laughs> I mean, it, that was cool. Um, but it had nothing to do with that. I mean, it, the, the scene was impactful enough on its own. Although I will say that is a very nice bonus that, uh, Captain Bright was was a Nautilin, so I, I won't I won't lie about that. Real, um, <laughs> really quick, bringing that in, um, and Greg, you're much better at this part of Star Wars trivia than I've ever been. But the 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 amount in which they talk about you know so and so is a you know fill in the species, um, not species but race, um, what whatever they would be. I, I thank God for Wikipedia. I had to look up almost all of them. Um, and I was like, my gosh, my Star Wars trivia skills suck at this, apparently. Like when they said a Nautilin, Captain Bright, I'm like, I don't know what the hell that is. So I had to look it up. Um, and there was a bunch of characters like that I had to look up. And I will say, Jason, something uh, Mark Tom- Thomas or Thompson? Mark Thompson. Mark Thompson did so cool with Captain Bright's characters. He kind of mimicked Kit Fisto's voice from The Clone Wars. So mm-hmm. I almost felt like, oh, I can like I can see this character even better now because that helps me see what he is. The same way he did the voice of Cassiv, um, the Weequay Nile character, he he sounded mm-hmm. like a Weequay out of Clone Wars. Like it was cool that he, um, mm-hmm. you know, he like one of hot, yeah, so it, yeah, exactly. So it was cool that like when he was doing these different alien uh, species. If there were characters who spoke that way in any of the mediums, he kind of harnessed that. And, and so like just hearing it, you're like, oh, I can see that character better now because of his ability to do those voices. Um, I yeah. thought that was really neat. Yeah. And I, I want to know how much they've planned out that. I, it was impressive to me. They hit on a wide range of especially old trilogy and prequel trilogies, uh, species or races, whichever you prefer. Mm. And so I'm curious to know, like, um, it, it, it would seem to me like, for example, maybe the galaxy hasn't discovered Rhodia yet. So mm. we maybe don't get a Rodian until we find that planet. Like, I, I, I can't recall if there's a Rodian anywhere or not in this, but I would be interested in that aspect. Like, there must be some familiar aliens we haven't gotten to yet that we'd want to see mm. kind of enter the Republic or get drawn in. So I'm excited for that uh, possibility as we keep expanding the galaxy. And if, if Starlight Beacon really is just the first of a big network, then we should have a lot more of our, our familiar galaxy to discover. Um, which is exciting. It's it's like uncovering a puzzle you already solved or something like that. But still, it's it's fun to see the pieces come together. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, so, kind of to to piggyback a little bit off of your your um, bringing us the the story about Captain Bright. One of my favorite characters who was not a Jedi um, was Kevon Kevon Tar. Um, I really enjoyed that character so much, you know, kind of this mainly because of the way they revisit one of the most popular Star Wars tropes, which is he's a nobody who becomes someone great, you know, um, and there's even that line somewhere in the book where it's like the son of a farmer from um, the Hetzel system now became one of the most influential people in the universe. And I think my favorite moment with that character kind of comes right at the end of part one which is when you know Avar Chris kind of has all the Jedi linked together and they're they're going to use the force at the exact time to you know push that uh, Tabana canister away from the star 
Um, and Kevon Tarr figures out a way to broadcast that entire thing across the galaxy so that everybody mm-hmm. can feel invested in this story of hope of the Jedi in the Republic working together. And I love that he just has that wherewithal to to do that. And um, he's he's a younger character, but yet he understands the need for telling this story, right? I mean, as Star Wars fans, we clearly love good stories. Kevon Tarr harnesses the power of a good story to help in his, to, in his hope is to unite the galaxy further. And I, I thought that was such a beautiful moment. Yeah, no, it was a, it was a great thing. Cause it was like, you know, not only is this going to the chancellor, but he was like, no, no, we're going to do this. And everyone is watching. And so it, it literally brings the galaxy to a standstill to observe what is happening on this outer rim, nowhere planet, you know, um, that is going through a moment of cataclysm, um, or potential cataclysm. Um, and, and it puts everyone right there and invests everyone in to this moment. Um, and, we're just, you know, very glad that the feed didn't just all of a sudden go, you know, because <laughs> everything blew up. So, um, but yeah, no, it, it, was, it also, it speaks the language of disaster movie really, really well. Yeah. Um, because like, I think of something like Armageddon where, you know, you get shots of like Times Square and there's news footage playing of whatever the actual plot of the movie is, right? Or uh, the big... Uh, the center of London too. I forget it's that uh, Piccadilly circus or, or one of those uh, neighborhoods in London. And so it felt like that, like, Oh, they're all invested. They're all pulled in. And I think it was a very savvy move to use a lot of that. Language because when star Wars is getting weird, we have other languages that we can understand it through and, and give us anchors to it. So yeah, it's a great moment. Yeah. Um, Go ahead, Carl. Oh, um, I was just going to say how much I love the relationship of Avar Chris and Elzar. Um, darn it. What's Elzar's last name? Man. Man. Oh, man. <laughs> how original. Double, <laughs> and he is a man. M. Yeah, <laughs> double M. Yeah. Elzar and Avar, I think I've never been much of a like shipper. And I mean, it's not hard to ship the two of them considering everything they give us about these two characters. Um, But the moment of them, uh, there were two attack of the clones moments for me between the two of them. And I just got so excited about this as coming off of all of our attack of the clones love at the end of last year. Um, I can guess what they are. Well, the one is when they're, uh, they're kind of putting together some pieces of the legacy run and the serv- the servo droid is having some trouble moving a piece. So Elzar kind of just flippantly uses the force and Avar gives him kind of like uh, like a rolled eye type of look. And he's just thinking, hey, I'm going to use the force to impress when I can. And I was like, that's totally Anakin with the space pairs. <laughs> um, and then the other moment of them when they go to Naboo to meet with the Santeca family and they have this moment where they're looking out at one of the the islands where they probably just want to lay out and name the birds as they're singing. <laughs> um, but, uh, <laughs> you know, they're looking out there talking about this supposed poet who lives there in a life of deep contemplation. And they both kind of reflect what a lovely life that sounds. And they're both thinking how much they only let themselves think it for a moment, but how they'd love maybe that life together. 
And I was like, this is, it, they're on Naboo looking out at the like lakes. Like this is Padme and Anakin. I love it. Um, so I just, mm-hmm. I really love the richness of their relationship. And I am so invested to know what might progress there and how will the Jedi order respond to the potential of two Jedi falling in love? Cause you know, as someone who comes from, uh, did a lot of work with, um, religious orders in my life, like it briefly thought of becoming a Jesuit priest, like lived with a lot of Jesuits. Um, you know, there is, um, there is such an intimacy within orders like that. And people can certainly fall in love with one another um, and love in all of its forms. It doesn't necessarily mean romantic. It can be very deep platonic love. Um, but I think there's also sometimes that room for romantic love to, to happen as well. And I'm really curious with how open minded the Jedi Order seems to be in this time. What would be their reaction? Right. I mean, it's it's clear. It's clear that attachments are still not allowed. Um, but I, I really want to see how that might play out because the two of them are obviously very drawn to one another. Um, and the, the, the moment kind of towards the, um, the, in the epilogue part of the book, when, you know, uh, quick side note, one of my favorite things is how they describe how every Jedi understands and experiences the force differently as a person who loves the diversity of religious experience in the world. I thought this was brilliant. Um, and you know, we learned that Elzar experiences the force as a deep ocean and at the end of the book, he has that experience of staring into a deep ocean when he's looking at Avar. And I'm like, this is so beautiful. And how he kind mm-hmm. of mourns the loss of that when she looks away. Um, and I'm like, oh, man. So I don't what did Maybe you two don't care about it at all. So I apologize if, if that's not something. But I, what did you two think about the those two in their dynamic? Um, I thought it was a great dynamic um, because it is sort of an interesting, you know, thing, you know, Jedi in love. We know they're not supposed to be, but uh, they're not like necessarily saying anything about it, but the feelings are kind of there. They're not mentioning it. And I think with Elzar, it's definitely a bit more obvious. Uh, He is definitely the more uh, maverick of the two. So that's probably not unusual. Uh, and he's, it's that, that epilogue scene over there, uh, you know, little atrium or whatever at the end. And, and she says that she wants to go dancing. Would you come dance with me? He's like, and he's sort of, he looks and he's like, I, I hope she doesn't see the expression on my face right now because she's not looking at it at the time because he's like, it was like i really want this but i really want more than this so <laughs> yeah 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 um I, yeah i like the two of them yeah uh, well i'll just add in i was on um, a great podcast called outer rim reads um in december or i think the episode do- dropped in january but the chapters he's doing a chapter by chapter read through of master and apprentice and the chapters i happened to get where um, when uh, exactly the right. rail Avaros, what he uh, he is caught by Qui Gon with somebody in his room in the morning, mm. um, and so the, this theme really resonated with that moment for me because because he's all like, oh well, it's it's not it's all about attachment, and I'm not attached to her. Like he's kind of like a gross frat boy dude, um, and then here you have this. It's like well, what 
maybe he there's something to what he said like if there's a way to have a romantic love without actually um you know putting your role as a jedi in in uh danger then maybe there could be a love story there so um you know 200 years apart probably not a real connection there but but certainly <laughs> there's a lot of connectivity around the order here for sure yeah uh, so you might say that we are encouraged to love I think Anakin knows what's up. So I'm just going to say that. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, uh, it, it, you I, know, go ahead, Jason. I think you were going to say something. Yeah. Are, are we, you know, if we we're done on these two characters, I wanted to bring up my favorite Jedi. Please. Uh, yeah. yeah. Do it. My favorite Jedi in this entire book is Loden Great Storm. Nice. Uh, I love Loden Great Storm. Um, those who haven't read the book, he is a green Twi'lek Jedi master, uh, who seems to be, you know, always viewing things on the lighter side of life. Uh, you know, cracking jokes, um, and things like that. I, I think he's fantastic. Um, so I, I love his character so much. Uh, you know, almost killing his Padawan a couple of times because uh, he's trying to teach him how to focus on the force in order to save him from a fall. Um, but not really almost killing him, but pretending like he's almost going to kill him. Um, I, I think that was, that's a reverse attack of the clones, right? Where the master throws the apprentice out of the, off the cliff instead of, yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes, that's true. He's uh, master to Bel Zedifar, uh, who's another very interesting character um, in this story. Um, of course, you know, big spoiler alert here. Uh, Loden Greatstorm is uh, kidnapped and held captive by the villains of this new era um, at the end of this book. Uh, and he's just left there. So we, we know he's alive. We know that they have him and that, um, Oh, the, the, eye. I'm forgetting his name. Um, Marchion Rowe. Mar- yeah. Marchion Rowe. Rowe. Yes. Yeah. Marchion Rowe, uh, has plans for him, but we don't know what those are. Uh, you know, it's, you're, you're a bit concerned because it's, it's a little, it's not good. Not good at all. So, yeah, well that that said Jason, you know, that's one thing we've yet to actually talk about is the the this new enemy, the Nile, um which or Nihil, however you want to pronounce it. Um they're such an interesting new villain force and Marchion Rowe um might be one of the coolest new villains and and I love the fact that they wear helmets. Um, that just feels very Star Wars, nothing like a good helmet in Star Wars. Um, and obviously they're practical for two main reasons. First and foremost is they clearly use a lot of nerve gas. So it's a way of keeping themselves safe when they show up. Um, but also just that pure simple fact of inciting fear. Um, I mean, they just felt so much like villains of all sorts of medieval stories, um, or again, even a Western story. Obviously, a lot of Westerns are very racist in the way they <laughs> depict Native Americans. But um, you know, like the the indigenous and you know marauder, whatever you want to call them. I mean, that's what the the Nile really felt like. 
um, and how they're used in the story. And they're kind of this force of chaos, but Marchion Rowe has this ulterior motive. And, you know, especially at the end when he has that, you know, conversation with Loden Greatstorm, it seems that his family, whoever the heck they might be, and it sounds like Marchion Rowe isn't even his real name. Um, he's got some history with the Jedi and he's looking for some vengeance. What did you, what did you both think of, of this particular character? Oh man. Uh, he, he's got that combination of cold calculating and insanity that feels just dangerous enough to do anything at all. Like I, he, he scares me just a little bit. Um, like it's a great, great choice of a villain for this era because, you know, we, we, we can't necessarily have, you know, a, a rise of, of Sith, you know, in any sort of obvious sense, uh, in this era, because, uh, we get in the Phantom Menace, it's impossible. They've been extinct for a millennia, you know, yeah sorry but uh but yeah but yeah so you know while i do think the sith are probably pulling some strings somewhere or at least you know uh is still secretly uh at work somewhere here uh martian row in essentially sort of a hostile takeover of the nihil because he was you know not a a uh pure leader in the sense uh, at the beginning of the book but by the end of it he is he's done sort of a very clever sort of hostile takeover that only his, you know, uh, right hands now really understand. Um, and it, he's reshaped this, this, you know, marauder group into some sort of force that I, I don't really know where he's taking it yet. Um, but he's just, it, he feels like he's got just the sort of right amount of crazy combined with a cold calculating, uh, to do just about anything, and it it makes me very nervous for a lot of the characters that we met in this series. So, uh, yeah, yeah, I find the the whole structure of the Nile just totally exciting and engrossing and terrifying, and all these these words. Um, the the way they're structured as storms. Um, so there's what there's strikes and clouds and storms and tempests. And then Martian Row is the the eye of the storm is all really compelling and really interesting to me. And it's it's like a perverse pyramid scheme inside this otherwise like chaotic group where they all have to go recruit more and, and they want to grow more um, as, as always feeding back to to the eye of the storm. Um, you know, Nile makes me think of nihilism, right? And mm. just a total lack of any caring and attachment to to feeling and goodness. Um, and I think Charles Sola said it's also meant to make you think of annihilate, right? Mm. Um, and they marketed this as what scares the Jedi, and that that sounds right to me. It's not a pure chaos. It's it's a greed. It's a you know, it's it's a dark. Uh, version of it um and and the other kind of pop culture connection i made to that one i guess i'm just pop culture references tonight i don't know maybe this is what pandemic has done to me but back to to firefly they have the reavers which are a kind of similarly constructed group 
And I think in the early episodes of Firefly, they say um, they were once men who went out into the darkest parts of space, looked into the darkness, and it changed them. And that feels like what we're dealing with here because you have their epic kind of meeting place, which is, if I'm understanding it correctly, like a completely transparent um, field where they they meet up and it's just all darkness around them. They're kind of inside um, magnetic shields that create atmosphere in, in a place, but they can easily shove each other out. Um, you know, I kind of pictured a, a cube made out of whatever holds docking bays uh, together. Um, and so that was really interesting to me because that is just the nothingness, right? They're, the heart of their organization is is nothing, and just like an eye of a storm would be. And so, um, and then just to pick back up on uh, Loden, now we have the Jedi named Great Storm at the heart of the Storm organization. Uh-huh. Um, I've got some big questions there, and I want to know where that's going to go and, and how that's going to kind of fit in the mythology the Nile tell themselves. Yeah, and Marcion Rowe was very quick and kind of excited to pick up on that sort of odd connection. So he was yeah. like, oh, really? Great Storm. Ha, 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 ha. <laughs> you know? So, and, and well, just... Just to sort of uh, paint a picture here for folks who have not read the book yet, he's keeping this great Jedi Master who has done some incredible feats of strength and abilities throughout the, the book so far prisoner by keeping him in a cell. However, in order to keep him exhausted and unable to focus on the Force, he has seven other cells that are hooked up to the electronic systems of the ship that will randomly zap the other prisoners there um with you know in, in random bursts and at random intensities uh to keep them in pain and suffering and agony to cloud the area around loading great storm uh just so that he cannot focus and cannot rest so that gave me yeah. um i felt like that was gave me vibes from the the Zygerian arc in clone wars right when they mm-hmm. capture obi-wan and the the Zygerian leader is telling um, Dooku that uh, basically the way they don't want to defeat the Jedi, but they want to enslave them. And the way you do that is by breaking their spirit, right? So, you know, you can't really overpower Obi-Wan easily. He's a great warrior, strong in the force. But if every time he lashes out, you kill an innocent prisoner, you know, it it has to buckle him up. Um, And I, I thought that was a really... Um, compelling way in which that they're going to control Loden is basically surrounding him with this cloud of fear and what that'll do to his spirit um, is pretty haunting. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Very, very scary character. And I thought something that was really brilliant about, um, because I'll say early on in the book, like Marchion Rowe was kind of like, eh, he's all right. Like he seems cool. Like, but by the end of the book, I'm like, Oh God, this is a great villain. Um, and you know, towards the end of the book, there obviously so much, you know, the, one of the common, uh, lines throughout the book is we are all the Republic. Um, I know those are on the socks you got Greg with your exclusive, uh, copy of the book, right? Yeah, they are. (laughs) I love them. (laughs) Um, but it's so cool how at the end there, when, uh, is giving this speech to the Nile and spinning this, the story of Kassiv to be one of great heroism. And he essentially says, we are all the Nile, right? So he's kind of taking this, 
united notion of the Republic, but perverting it. Um, and it really makes me think a lot of, and, and I don't want to get too much into this, but just the reality of our own political climate today, right? The ability to take narratives and just twist them to our own ends, right? And I'm, and I'm saying that from all sorts of the spectrum, right? Like the ability to take events that just have occurred and then the ability to twist them to your own ends. Um, and I thought what was really compelling about compelling about Marchion's kind of speech towards the end is how he's spinning this tale of how he chooses to demonize the Republic. They're coming to take your freedom. They're going to tell you the way you want to live is wrong. It's a narrative we've heard all too much recently, and it's a very dangerous narrative. Um, so I thought it was really interesting the way that's kind of what energizes Marchion's um, kind of quest to really take command of the Nile. And, you know, the other comparison that the creators have said is that they're space Vikings, right? And it does feel like, you know, we're way out here in the Outer Rim or towards the Outer Rim, um, like the the Roman legions uh, in in England, right, or on the island of England before it was England, um, kind of just getting into the wild frontier and just starting to meet this chaotic group and, and realizing they can't both coexist there, Um and maybe the Republic just has to build a wall eventually <laughs> and, and block them out. Um, but uh, it's it's certainly, you know, it would have been a mistake to do the, like, proto-Empire or a uh, super weapon, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was really excited that they came up with something so original um, and something scary. And, and you know, um, not to spoil anything about the other books, the, the Nile are pre- present in the other books I've read so far. Um, but there are also other forces of darkness that are being stirred awake. Um, and so I think we're going to find that the Jedi are going to have their hands full kind of in many different ways. Hmm. Yeah. Um, and, and just to sort of give anybody who hasn't read the book uh, an idea of what really kind of sets the, the Nihil apart other than their fanatical, uh, you know, uh, leader and, and, you know, pyramid scheme set up uh, here is that they have access to paths uh, through hyperspace that are not charted. Um, they're not charted. They're secret paths uh, you know, shortcuts and things like that through hyperspace and the entire catastrophe that has started at the beginning of the book is because one of the Nihil ships uh, crossed paths with um, the Legacy Run at the beginning of the book and the Legacy Run tried to change course in hyperspace uh, to avoid a head-on collision, and it that course correction is what pulled it apart. Um, and so the Nihil have this sort of secret back door into anywhere in the galaxy uh, because of these these uh, hyperspace paths that they have found, uh, essentially through the walls of normal hyper hyperspace. So. It's very interesting. Very, very interesting. Yeah. The note- and, that, and that that's tied to a Santeca makes it really interesting, too. So a lost Santeca sibling that seems to be the source of all the power of the Nile. It's 
I feel like there's a lot of story there too. So it's, it is a good thing to share with people. Yeah, that was, uh, you know, you referenced earlier, um, the interview Charles Soule did on Star Wars Explained, and he talked about how, um, well, uh, you know, Alex, the host asked him, you know, what are some like D list characters from Star Wars you really like? And he said, I loved Lore Santeca. So he's like, I play around with the Santecas as much as I can. Um, and it was just so cool to get this, again, this idea that there are hyperspace prospectors, um, mm-hmm. you know, who, who, who and, and they've literally struck it rich. The Santecas are very well off on Naboo when we meet them in the story. Um, and they made their money by being prospectors. And obviously one of their very family members is, you know, been kidnapped by Marchion and she's the one who gives them the paths. Um, and yeah, it's just, it's really neat to the way they kind of play with hyperspace because I feel like hyperspace has just always been a given in Star Wars that we don't really, at least I've never really thought about. So it was kind of neat to kind of even get like a little bit more out of what hyperspace is, how it works, how people chart it. And I mean, it makes a lot of sense. You know, you're going to these unknown regions that no one's been to. You've got to have somebody going ahead of you, making sure the course is safe. You know, um, I, Charles Soule in that interview mentioned how it was like, you know, like building the first interstate highways. You know, somebody has to go out there and kind of make the ways and make sure it's safe. Um, and that's what these prospectors have done. Um, so, yeah, it's it's really neat getting that element from the story. I also liked, I think it was there, he threw it to, you know who else is a prospector? Obi-Wan! How are you? <laughs> yeah. Right? Like, uh, maybe there's a Dexter Jetster story there. Somebody who, yeah, he says he's a prospector and he knew something about um, the galaxy and the way it's laid out that the Jedi didn't even know. There's there's a lot of potential to weave in the Jetster family as well. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, I, I don't, you know, that would be funny if we got something, <laughs> you know, Baxter Jetster. Um, <laughs> <laughs> something like that out there. Um, and but, one other one other piece that's really interesting, too, is that I think some people complain about this, about the sequel trilogy, but Han uses um, hyperspace in a couple different ways that we hadn't seen before. Um, in Force Awakens, he... Um, he actually both enters hyperspace from inside the hangar and then he uh, lands on the Starkiller base, like inside the shield, basically in the atmosphere. Um, and there's some clues that that might be related to the Nile, right? That uh, the Nile have that ability and it seems like nobody else does at this period. So, um, you know, I, I think that's an interesting piece too. That that's that is essentially a superpower. If you can land your dangerous cruiser right above the imperial capital in the atmosphere, um, you're really dangerous. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. Um, one other thing, I just I want to make sure I mention this because it was um, has nothing to do with what we've just been talking about, but just another notion of the Jedi that I really liked in in the story is the way in which they embody compassion, um, right? There's a very detached compassion to the Jedi of the prequel era, right? Like they're supposed to be, you know, caring for others, but that way of caring isn't particularly empathetic. Um, you know, they'll happily lay down their life for you, but they don't even really take the time to know you. Um, and something I loved is that scene when we have 
um, kind of like that reunion moment where, like you alluded to earlier, Greg, we, that character Surge, who survived the legacy run, who we meet in the first chapter, and when he just breaks down crying and Buriaga, um, Buriaga just picks him up and holds him. The Jedi, we, there's that scene when Avar Chris first meets up with Lena So back on Coruscant after the disaster, and. Lena So goes right up to her and takes her by the hands and looks her into the eyes. And like, there's this intimacy, you know, imagine Palpatine doing that with uh, a Jedi, <laughs> you know what oh, I mean? God, um, and, but there's just, there's this intimacy of the Jedi that I really appreciate the fact that they embrace other people, specifically people that are hurting, you know? And I love that part because Buriaga, like we're getting kind of his internal dialogue. He's like, when people are lost, you find them. When they feel hopeless, you give them hope, you hold them. And I just, you know, like, I feel like a lot of the words the Jedi say, their doctrine and dogma of the prequels, like the heart of it is good, but they don't live by the heart of it. They live by the letter of it. And there's a big Mm -hmm. difference and there's a big flaw in that. You know, the same is true of religious traditions today. You have a lot of people that like to live by the letter of their religious dogma. Um, which I find very limiting and pointless. And then you have people that live out beyond that because you have to understand that words can never fully contain the mystery that is the divine. Um, but uh, I, I just love that scene where Buriaga is holding little Surge and just letting him cry. Um, I, like that is the, the type of Jedi I, I, I want to imagine they'll continue to be. Yeah, the, the moment that he he does that and he's like you know the the internal monologue is like i don't understand why no one hasn't done this yet Mm -hmm. you know yeah it was like i was like god you know it's this kid you know you've you've passed him off to a droid you know because he's standing there just staring out into you know the 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 trance the opaque you know uh window essentially um just staring at nothing and there's the the you know the therapy droid that's there trying to talk to him, but the you know the kid's not responding, and you know no one, no one from the Republic, no one else from the Jedi, no one else from the 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 therapy staff or whatever has seems to have just held him. And Buriaga's like, why hasn't anybody done this? And you know that really does a lot for uh, for Surge himself, uh, but it also then of course leads to some very important information that they need as to what happened to the legacy run too. Uh, Cause yeah. the kid's a, kid's a bit of an amateur slicer. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, um, but yeah, that was just, uh, that moment was a very powerful and important moment. So. I just want to shout out how much I love Buryaga. Um That scene starts with him feeling super awkward at a fancy party, which is me at my job every time <laughs> we used to have fancy parties. Uh, but also in the beginning, there's this wonderful moment where they're getting ready to work as a team to slow some of the emergences and get them tethered to the ship. Or no, they're going to blow them up first. And it sounds like Buryaga, they they sense that Buryaga is hesitating. They're like, oh, he's just nervous. He's a dumb Padawan. And then it's because he's the only one who felt the people inside the container they were about to blow up. And so he saved lives there, probably Surge. I think they make that direct. Um, and then he's just, he's his his version of the for, Force is high on compassion. And it's, it's really cool. And I can't wait to see what happens with him. I hope he sticks around for a while. Yeah. And for those wondering, Buryaga's a Wookiee. Mm. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah. What key you've seen in the art. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I think he's on every he, cover so far. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Buriaga Agaburi is his full name, which I just love that it's it's sort of like that. Uh, it, the, the, the way that that flows off the tongue is just, I love it. Yeah. <laughs> now, Greg, your story about being kind of um, at a faculty party or something actually re- reminded me because I wanted to make sure I made this point, especially because you're on. Um, obviously, you're a college professor, but uh, Elzar is someone who's still seeking to become a Jedi Master. You know, Avar Chris has, even though they've been in this, they were in the same class essentially, and she mm-hmm. brings him along on her like mission to Naboo and and you know, kind of continuing to try to uncover more about the emergences and what happened. And Elzar kind of makes it clear that he really wants to be a Jedi master because the masters are, they have full access to the archives. They kind of can do their own projects essentially. And I thought of you as like, Oh, it's like when you finally get tenure or something, like you can finally feel a level (laughs) of freedom, you know, as a professor. No, no concerns about, you know, being challenged for your work or something like that. Yeah, no, it's, it's very much like that. And and, um, I think that, it's always interesting to me that the Jedi in a lot of these uh, sources, they mix the kind of academic world with the spiritual world, right? They are a religious order, but there's also the Jocasta new side of things. And, and like I said, I've, I've been reading master and apprentice again, and there's a lot of that, like who has access to the library and, and things like that. So it is, it's very cool. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, and that was a notion to be fair. So, um, the, the Revenge of the Sith novel, which I laud every chance I can get, which I'm about to. Um, right In mm-hmm. the novel, we're told why Anakin wants to be a master so much is because he wants access to those archives in hopes of discovering something to prevent his nightmare of Padme's death, um, which is something obviously not in the movie, which kind of stinks because it does make that point more more real. And I love that Elzar is this character, though. He doesn't want access to the archives because he's trying to do some manipulation of life itself, but uh, what what I love about his character so much and why he's one of my favorites in the book is he's always trying something new with the force. He understands that the force is this great mystery that can never be fully understood. So he always wants to try something new with it. And, um, and while the, he still hasn't become a master because of a little bit of his flippancy at the same time, you don't get the sense though, that the council like has this weird dislike of him or they're keeping him at arm's length like you kind of get about Qui-Gon with the council and Phantom Menace um you know they're very wary of him and um uh yeah and um and that also makes me think of uh and honestly this is probably my favorite character is Avar Chris um what I love about her is she's constantly listening to the force. And I just felt like this was such a, this was exactly what was missing from the prequel era Jedis. They're more concerned about listening to the politicians and the politics and their dogma that they actually don't really listen to the will of the force. Um, and this is a huge, um, in my own life experience, this is a huge thing I've I always brought when I was part of the Catholic tradition is, Hey, Catholic hierarchy, do you ever actually listen to the living spirit or do you just listen to your silly old dogma? <laughs> so um, and the reality is, is often there's silly old dogma um, that doesn't serve the needs of the people. Um, but uh, be that as it may, like I love that about Avar and her ability to hear it as song. Um, and Greg, you might know the answer to this because I, I can't remember where I saw it and I'm kicking myself because I didn't read it when I did. Um, but Charles Soule apparently, I don't know if it was in an article or something, but talked about how writing this book was kind of 
like a, a meditation on the force for him. And I felt that as I read so many of those scenes where spe- specifically Avar is connecting to the force. Um, it was so spiritual. I, I, I like I said, often I would like close the book and almost like just take some deep breaths and like do a meditation practice with the book. And it felt like, I don't know what Charles Soule's personal spiritual tradition might be, if any, mm-hmm. um, but it's very clear that if he doesn't personally have one, he did his homework to understand a little bit about it. Um, are we, are you familiar with that article I'm referencing? Um, there's something about how you know. Yeah, it sounds vaguely familiar to me. I, I know what I was thinking of in, in the, the event, the big release, pre-release event. Um, he, they were each asked to tell um, what their um, version of the Force would be. So exactly like we've all been saying, each Jedi has their own way to see the Force and they understand it differently. Um, and I, I think that's where a lot of that meditative quality comes from especially through avar who's just a fantastic character i have seen the fan casting uh of her of brie larson to play mm. avar chris in the movie and i'm here for that i'm here for um it. <laughs> but uh in that charles soul didn't talk about his own spirituality but when asked what the force would be to him he he said the force to him would of course be a story it's a it's a story coming together and being written um across space and time and our job is just to read it and to see where it wants to go so um again it, he didn't frame that as this is my religion but mm. i i would take that as my religion almost right like yeah. it's a beautiful thought and and as is the song metaphor and as are there some plant metaphors for the force and things like that they're they're really excellent deep kind of spiritual force stuff which i think you both said in your opening remarks it's something that um, Star Wars has been lacking in in its literature, particularly of late. I would say, um, mm. I think there was so much fear that they would, um, you know, write something that the sequels would have to undo. That now, with with the saga complete, I'm hoping there's really this chance to to dive into that all more. Yeah, and well, and that that said, um, something I was thinking about with, um, the, so I was telling a friend of mine how much. I loved this book because he's been also rereading some old legend stuff. And I was like, you really, I was like, put, put, put the Nickelback album down and grab this John Williams CD. You're going to love it. Um, <laughs> you know, and, uh, and he asked me cause he, he's always really interested in, uh, are there new force powers? And he's like, so are there any new force powers here? And I actually kind of struggled for a second. I was like, huh, are there really any new ones? Um, my initial reaction was n- not particularly, um, I just said that we see the force being used in maybe different ways. Um, how would you two answer that question? Do you think we're seeing any new force powers or is it just that it's being used differently? Uh, I would probably go more along with your answer because it's not like it's anything too far out of the realm of possibility uh, from things that we've seen in other material um, you know, the the idea that all the Jedi are being, you know, sort of connected and, and, and uh, you know, through one person. One person is sort of facilitating a connection through all the Jedi uh, in the person of Avar Chris uh, in the, you know, the the calamity that's happening over Hetzel uh, was, uh, was a really fascinating thing. But we've heard of things like that before. Uh, Jedi battle meditation, things like that um, have been referenced in other material. The other one is uh, Elzar and Avar creating the uh, the storm cloud. Yeah, uh, they have the 
uh, you know, the, the droid array that's about to just overheat and blow up. Um, and they, they create that storm cloud in order to cool everything down. Uh, was really cool, but it's more of sort of a, a pushing together, I guess, of the, the, um, molecules and atoms and things like that in the air to create the moisture, to create the clouds and things like that. So I, I don't know if it's necessarily a new force power, but it's using it in a different way for sure. And he says, you know, I've never, I've, the theory is sound, but I've never tried this. So let me whirl. Um, so, uh, <laughs> So that was, you know, it, it's not unheard of, um, but it's definitely new uh, and explored in a, a different lens, in my opinion. So what about you, uh, Greg? What do you, how would you? Yeah, you definitely picked the two moments I was thinking of. I completely agree with the uh, the storm cloud is that is essentially basic telekinesis, just, you know, a much more difficult, more grand form of it, but to pull the, the moisture through the air, right? Size matters not. So, so it can be the star destroyer you pull from the sky, or it can be the molecules you, you pull, push around. Um, the, the Avar Chris power is a really interesting one. Um, I agree with you that it, it came, what came to mind was um, the battle meditation, particularly from, I believe it's Bastila Sean in uh, the old Knights of the old Republic game. I believe that was her power. If I'm remembering that game correctly is, is drawing um, things, drawing lots of Jedi together for that. Um, and in the in some of the interviews I've heard with Charles Soule since the book came out, he's, he was clear that it wasn't meant to be exactly the battle meditation, that it is her own unique spin on that, even if the effect is similar. Um, and the other moment that comes to mind with that one is um, there's, I believe it's season two of the Clone Wars. Is it Children of the Jedi? I'm not good with my Clone Wars episodes. Um, but they capture Cad Bane and interrogate him. Mm. And Anakin starts trying to read his, do the Jedi mind trick. And then Obi-Wan joins and then Mace Windu joins. And it's it's kind of a dark sidey moment. It's not um, that, but that idea that you can multiply the force powers by having more members join together, I think has been around, um, but certainly didn't show up exactly as it did on Hetzel Prime in this kind of uh, big way. Yeah. Yeah. I, I will say that moment when she steps out onto the fields of mm. Hetzel to... Uh, you know, bring all the Jedi together to move the the Tabana gas canister, and her lightsaber is you know hovering in the air, spinning in a circle to uh, you know help focus things and and give her the uh, the the rhythm for it all is was absolutely fantastic. I got chills listening to that part of the the audio book. So. Yeah, that I was just trying to flash flash you guys the imagery they use in the Great Jedi Rescue for that moment is really cool. Oh, cool. So again, a, a plug for that book if you haven't picked it up. Um, look for it. I yeah that so that comes chapter seventeen in the book might be my favorite chapter ever in a Star Wars book, um, and it just it had some of my favorite moments in the whole book starting with. Avar kind of arguing with Admiral Croana, or however you say his name, um, about what their tactics ought to be. And her, her, in her head, she's thinking the easiest way to to stop an argument is to just not have it. So as he's arguing with her, she just runs and jumps out of the ship. 
jumps. <laughs> I mean, kind of like Anakin yep. with Obi-Wan maybe and, and you know, in Attack of the Clones. Yep. Um, she just jumps off the ship and like lands. And, and that was one of the scenes. And um, again, like I, I really hope that lots of Star Wars artists are reading this book and getting inspiration because I can't – you know, I, I can't do art at all, but I would love to see someone do an image, a painting, a drawing, whatever of this particular scene of her in that, that farmer's field connecting to the force, meditating, levitating above the ground. Um, that was just so cinematic to me. Um, yeah, I absolutely loved that. And you know, like you were saying, Jason, in the audiobook, they use the piece of music of Yoda lifting the X-wing from empire strikes back. Um, which was perfect music. And it also starts by using the version of the force theme from when Anakin says goodbye to Shmi. So it's like two of my favorite pieces of music from star Wars in that scene mm-hmm. too. Um, mm-hmm. but, they, uh, they even have the lightsaber hum in the background for a yeah. while as, they, as he reads it and things like that. It's, yeah. it's terrific. Like you can picture it. The, the, I, I'm not, I'm not going to stop singing the praises of this audiobook because it is such a cinematic listening experience. Uh, if you have the chance to listen to this book, I highly recommend it, even if you've already read the physical book itself, because it just gives you a different perspective in a very cinematic way. Yeah. Um, I, I sing its praises um, for anyone who will listen. So, <laughs> yeah, that and that force ability of Avar's, the ability to connect all those minds the closest thing it honestly reminded me of was what Ray is able to do at the end of R- rise of Skywalker. Um, I'm not saying mm-hmm. it's not the same. There is certainly a difference. Yeah. Um, but there mm-hmm. is to me, it like there's a purity of that moment. Like Avar is able to, to bridge all of these Jedi together because they have this common coal, this common belief. Um, and they're just so much stronger when they're united. And I just felt like that there's something so pure, purely Jedi about that moment. And I feel like that's Ray's ability to, to do that in episode nine is she is in a way kind of recapturing this kind of ancient purity of Jedi connection. Um, and, and maybe that's me stretching it a bit. Um, but I, I mean, what Ray's able to do in nine is one of my favorite things in star Wars. And I just felt like this was something kind of, kind of similar to that. Um, and, uh, you know, yeah, the, uh, just a, a quick shout out when she's connecting to all of them. And, you know, we obviously mentioned Elzar understands the force is a deep ocean, but Buryaga's is one of my favorites too. He sees himself as a leaf on this great worship tree, which is just like, mm-hmm. that's all like that in and of itself is very Christian, very Christian symbol symbolism from the gospel of John where, you know, Jesus describes himself as, you know, you're a vine on, on me, the tree of life. Mm-hmm. So um, yeah. I just thought that was so cool. I, I love it because, you know, the, you, you get images of, of, you know, a song of light, of fire, of an ocean, of a tree, things like that of nature. But then you also have, you know, I forget which character it is, but she sees it as uh, a light in a window in a cityscape, you know, a single light in a window in a cityscape, mm-hmm. um, which is, you know, also a very distinctly beautiful image in and of itself uh even if it's very you know different from everyone else so i do love the fact that we're getting into the idea that all the jedi view the force and have a connection to the force that is unique and different from each other um and and it's it's a very beautiful distinction uh that is being made so Mm mm-hmm 
I want to I want to ask you guys a question though because I think we've covered so much of this book. So I'm really curious to hear from you guys. Um, so we're at the start of a very long journey in the High Republic. Um, this is maybe the first third of the first phase or something like that. So um, what's on your High Republic wish list? Because um, so we seem like we are just over the moon about this book, and I certainly <laughs> am. Um, and so, um, you know, where could this possibly go? What would, what would you want out there in the, the future of the High Republic? This is why I don't. Oh. Well, so I was going to say, this is why I love and hate having Greg on because he asks great <laughs> questions that I would need a week to prepare. Um, <laughs> um, well, before, before – Greg, you asked the question, so I'm curious if you have your own notions. I, I'd rather you start and then give us maybe a second to think for ourselves here. But are there any yeah, notions I, that you have? So I can I can absolutely uh, fill time. That's literally what my job is half the time. Um, <laughs> ask a question and fill time till somebody thinks of the answer is exactly what my average class is. Um, so I will fill in with the information um, for if listeners didn't know, um, they did announce that there are three phases of um, the High Republic to come. And they are Light of the Jedi, not just the novel, but this first phase is called Light of the Jedi. The second one is Quest of the Jedi, and the third one is Trials of the Jedi. Um, so there's a lot of possibility to me there about what that might mean. And I think it's clear we're going to stay with the Jedi. So if number one on my list would be, you know, more about the Force, more about the Jedi, I think there's no chance we're not getting that. So I almost take that out of consideration. Um, so then I, I think my next wish would be... I do love the side of Star Wars that's uh, criminals and smugglers and bounty hunters, that kind of underworld side of Star Wars. And I'm really curious what's there during this period. Um, if there are smugglers operating under the High Republic who aren't Nile, um, and there are some hints about some of that elsewhere in the High Republic, which I won't mention, but um, I would say somewhere along the line, I want to, I want to see the underworld. I want to know, um, is it, is it a very small underworld at this point? You know, the, the age of the empire, there's usually a lot of that activity going on because the control of the government is so strong um, and just, uh, you know, lots of opportunity. Um, if there's great prosperity everywhere and these worlds don't have to worry, maybe there aren't any smugglers or any bounty hunters or anything like that. So um, what's the state of the underworld would be on my list. Mm. So you just want, uh, gypsies, tramps, and thieves. Um, yeah, <laughs> I'm, I'm playing a, a in the Star Wars RPG. I'm playing it's. I think it's the Edge of Empire uh, expansion, and it's very much that kind of stuff. So yeah, I, I'm there for that. <laughs> Got it. Uh, uh, um, man, I, I don't even know. I, I like. I have been kind of out of the loop in the last month or so on a lot of things, just because of things going on in my own life. Um, so I don't know a lot of you know what's been laid out and stuff. So I have no idea what I want to see in this except more of what we've been getting. Um, I I just want to explore the Force and the Jedi uh, and new characters and things like this. I mean, I obviously, I personally would love to see a continuation of a lot of the characters that we got here in Light of the Jedi, particularly Loden Greatstorm, um, his Padawan Belzettafar, 
Avar Chris, Elzar Man, you know, and and things like that. I would love to see how their stories progress throughout this. I'm I'm assuming we will. Um, but other than that, I don't have many expectations or a wish list or a checklist of things I want or need to see because it's just so new and different. And I'm just I'm here for the ride. Uh, because we've already, you know, we, we've just gotten through the queue and we've, you know, wrapped <laughs> in and the ride's heading up the first big hill. Uh, so I'm just waiting to see where this takes us because I'm excited uh, for this new era of Star Wars. I really am. That's a great point, you know, because <laughs> um, I'm going to I'm going to kind of be with you there, Jason, in the sense of like, I don't, I don't really have anything that specific, um, you know, kind of like you were alluding to earlier, Greg, so much of current star Wars, um, canon literature is, you know, troopers, pilots, underworld stuff, um, all of things that like, I love those as periphery parts of star Wars, but at the end of the day, I'm going to go with you, Jason. I just, I just don't really care as long as we keep going the way we're going. I just want more Jedi. I want more force lore. Um, I think this is this guess, is what I want in Star Wars, and you know, so I'm I don't care how how it goes as long as I get more Jedi and Force and stuff. So <laughs> yeah, I, oh, stop it. Sorry, um, at my cat. <laughs> um, but uh, I, well, I'll say this. I guess one of the specifics I would like to see explored is um, certainly more of what comes of Avar and Elzar's relationship. Um, and I really want to find out who Marcion Rowe is and what's his beef with the Jedi, mm. which, I mean, these are yeah, things I want to see point. that they've clearly set up that we're going to see. Right. Do um, you think that might connect to, uh, Acolyte, the movie they announced or sorry, TV oh, show they announced yeah, yeah. that will close out the high Republic? I don't know because Acolyte's a very specific sort of sound, uh, sort of term and i honestly don't know if we've really even seen what will what the connection to that tv show is yet at least not from light of the jedi there might be something you know loosely uh tied into it from light of the jedi of course i I, and i have no experience with any of the other material yet um the comics i'm waiting for the uh the trade paperbacks because that's how i i do my comics at this point um and I, I haven't read any of the other books yet. I'm going to start uh, Courage of the Courage of the Jedi, whatever it is. A Test um, of Courage. Test of Courage, that one. I'm going to start that audiobook probably tomorrow, maybe later tonight. Um, and then I'm waiting for next month for the Claudia Gray book uh, to come out on Audible, to use my credit on that, because um, it's not available yet. Even though I saw it in Barnes & Noble today, I was very irritated about that oh no <laughs> that's always tempting because you want to grab it and take it up but you often get rejected at the register which is way more embarrassing <laughs> <laughs> so um but yeah i don't i don't know if acolyte we've really seen what the connection to that tv show is going to be yet um it may be loosely but i don't think we've gotten any strong ties from light of the jedi the novel um to what that's going to be yet that's yeah. my own personal thought because I feel like it's something darker. So maybe along those lines of related question, and then I'll stop my interrogation is do either of you want to see Sith 
during this? Or do you think it's better to just leave them in the shadows and not talk about them? I'm of the opinion that I'd rather them be in the shadows and not directly talk about them. Um, because we've gotten, we've, I mean, they've been done to death. <laughs> um, <laughs> and it's like you were saying earlier, it's just so great having this fresh new villain and they prevent or prevent, they present a new challenge to the Jedi, right? The Sith, it's the same old challenge time and time again. Um, but this is something new. So I, and while I've heard rumors that Acolyte is going to kind of be about like what's going on with the Sith during this era, um, I'm cool with that being in that show, but I don't particularly need it in the books. Um, personally, that's not to say that I probably wouldn't enjoy it cause I'm sure that I would, but I, for myself don't really need it nor want it. But where does that fall for you, Jason? Um, I, I don't because of where we are in, in the story of star Wars. And we know that the Sith really are very much in the shadows and hidden at this point, um, in the overall story. I don't want there to be a lot of focus on them. I would like maybe like a quick peek, look in and see like what their thoughts on what's going on is, you know, might be. We, I think it was sort of obtusely referenced um, when we had the success of the Jedi uh, turning the Tabana canister away from the sun. Um, and the book mentions briefly, you know, those in the shadows and the darks rooting against the Jedi were unhappy. Uh, but they were very few, uh, something like that. So I think we've got kind of an obtuse reference to maybe the Sith uh, once in this book. Um, but it could, it's just also a very nebulous, you know, description. So it could be any sort of criminal organization, um, maybe could, even yeah. referencing the Nihil themselves. Um, so, yeah. But yeah, I, I, I don't think we need any sort of major focus, but kind of a, like a look in see what's going on, how they're feeling, how they're sort of navigating the, this high Republic might be interesting. Um, in, so, in, terms of a, in terms of how we build up to Palpatine. You would be disappointed if Marcion Rowe is secretly Palpatine. <laughs> Somehow Palpatine has returned. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, well, you know, I know we can obviously continue talking about this book easily for hours. Um, being that it's, it is getting to be long. I'm, I'm going to invite, you know, both of you, if you have any kind of just closing remarks, closing thoughts, or maybe anything big that you feel like, Oh my gosh, I really want to talk about this. And we haven't, um, I, I, I give you the no space to do that. <laughs> uh, go ahead. Uh- yeah, I'll, I'll go first. Uh, so I just, uh, more than anything, what the High Republic means to me is that publishing is really getting the chance to impress all of us. Um, and the first round is delivering, and I really just hope they can sustain it. It's going to be difficult now that they've come out so strong. Um, but they've got a great bunch of creators, and they're really putting the resources behind it in a way Star Wars hasn't in a while. Um, and I'm somebody, I you know, I'm a child of the dark times as I've shared on the show before. And so the books were how I got into star Wars. And I think I've read every book there is uh, at least all the, the fiction. So I'm just really excited to see this spotlight turn towards 
um, towards publishing and, and to see, you know, my Twitter feed on release day was just unbelievable with everybody talking about their love of high Republic. Um, this week we get the YouTube show in support of it, which I hope all the Larians really support and watch. Obviously there was some, um, deeply racist attacks on the host of that show this week on Twitter, which were just vile and disgusting. Um, so I hope, you know, all of us on the light side can enjoy the show, leave positive comments, share it, um, and get those view numbers up. Cause there's going to be people looking to sabotage it. Um, and then I just, I'm so excited to see where this all goes. You know, um, I think the next round has largely been announced, um, with Kevin Scott getting the next, um, adult novel. Um, the, uh, follow up to the middle grade book will be DJ older picking up, um, some new characters, I think, in a story related to the Galactic Fair, which sounds really exciting, like a World's Fair, but for the galaxy. Um, and then the characters from A Test of Courage are moving from um, middle grade to the YA book next, which is really cool that they're passing the characters around, too. So all of that is to say there's just so much potential here. And um, we, Oh, and Kevin Scott has an original graphic novel coming of a monster hunter, like a Jedi monster hunter. Maybe a Jedi Newt Scamander. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm here for this. I think it sounds so cool and exciting, and and I trust the talent. So um, yeah, thank you to Charles Soule for just an incredible book, and and I hope it's just the tip of the iceberg, the the top of a Coruscant mountain <laughs> of what's to come. Mate, <laughs> mate, uh, yes, um, which we saw in the Clone Wars. Um, mm. Yeah, uh, I. <sighs> I'm very, very excited for this new era of, of publishing and storytelling in Star Wars. I've said that many times, but uh, and I was excited for it from the announcement, so that's not nothing new. What I will say is that now that I'm getting a better idea, a better picture of what we can expect and the characters that we can expect to explore and get to know, I am... 100% invested at this point with with this new era of Star Wars uh, in a way that I haven't been with other eras, say, you know, the old Knights of the Old Republic or, uh, you know, other things like that, you know, that I know other people, you know, other fans uh, have been so invested in other eras before. Um, this is definitely like my idealized version of what I wanted the Jedi of the prequels to be. And so that is probably why I am so heavily invested in gung-ho with with what's going on here in the High Republic because uh, it's what I always wanted to see the Jedi as and it's I'm finally getting to see them as the arbiters of of, you know, the guardians of peace and justice, the arbiters of of truth and and compassion and things like that you know doing good and not you know being defined by their failings as they were in the prequels but finally getting to see the jedi as the the harbingers of of good and the the instruments of the force that they always were meant to be um you know something that we never really saw in the saga films because of where we were at in the the story of the Jedi. So I think that's one reason why I'm very excited for this because the Jedi are heroes. They are the heroes of the story. They are the good guys. And I'm finally getting to see them 
almost 100% act like the good guys that I always wanted them to be uh, and not and not get caught up in some of the failings and the arrogance that they had uh, in the, the prequel era. Not to say that there won't be those things uh, because characters need to develop and have, you know, flaws and things like that. But on the whole, this is what I've always wanted to see. And so I am so excited to finally be getting it uh, in an official way. Hmm. Yep. Yeah, me too. All right. Goodbye. No, <laughs> uh, nah, yeah, I, it's like you're saying, Jason. Um, this is these are the types of stories I've kind of always longed for in Star Wars. Um, and while I I never got into like Knights of the Old Republic as either a video game or even the old comic type things, um, this is I do feel like they found like a really good sweet spot with this era. Um, and while I, I still would love um, a Ryan Johnson trilogy about the formation of the Jedi and Octo, because I feel like he would crush it. Um, this is like a really good, perfect middle ground where this is the height of them at their power. I love how the book time and time again tells us how much the, the, the Republic, like the people of the Republic really trust and believe in the Jedi, which again, by the time we get to the prequels, there's a wariness about them. And then by the end of the Clone Wars, they hate them. So it's really cool to see them in the limelight and they're in the limelight because of who they are, not because of their reputation, not because of the legends about they're still forming those legends. Um, and you know, they're not just respected for the sake of being respected. They're earning the respect of the people. And I love those stories and I want more of those stories. And I want these stories to explore what the force is and how people tap into it. So like I alluded to earlier, I'm, I'm, you know, halfway done with Justine Ireland's book, Test of Courage. And it's for being a middle grade book. It's phenomenal. I'm loving it. And it's continuing those very same things. Like, yes, it's a very different writing style because it's a middle grade book, but the richness of the story is still very much there. Um, so yeah, I just, I can't wait to see where we continue to go with this, um, this era. And, uh, you know, I mean, I curious if you two feel the same way about, this idea, uh, the end of this book had a very, um, Phantom Menace vibe to me. Like, I felt like we got to gather and hold up that peace ball and feel great. But I felt like with that epilogue, you know, you have this beautiful little moment and yet it ends with this terrifying vision where, you know, we might've just been hearing this great Augie municipal band, but it was just playing the emperor's theme in a major key, <laughs> you know? Yeah. So yeah, no, that's that's a great description because it is sort of like yes, we 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 did it, we we made it, uh, but there's more. Yeah, well, uh, there's and, a lot more, and and it's it's the greatest fee, the greatest enemy is still out there, which is fear. I'll sneak in one more pop culture reference by saying it's it's Hamilton, right? Winning is easy, young man. Governing is harder. So I think it was easy to kind of beat this foe back, but keeping everything together moving forward is going to be a lot harder. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, the, the story ends with them. Some of them assuming they defeated the entire Nile fleet, Um, but Mm. they are sorely mistaken. (laughs) So, um, well, with that, um, I I think we'll, we'll kind of wrap this up. Uh, Again, 
I want to find other ways to talk about this book because there's, I, as always overprepared, I have four pages of detailed notes with all sorts of themes, scenes, themes, uh, things we still didn't get a chance to touch on. Um, so I think that might be, this will be popping up more in the near future and especially with into the dark coming out in just a few more weeks. Um, less than that. I think it comes out next week. <laughs> um, yeah, it's the fifth. Yeah, so very so soon. just about a week away. Um, so yeah, I just, uh, hoping, you know, Greg, you'll continue to come back and talk high Republic with us. Um, so, uh, and yes. of, of course we want to, you know, send us your thoughts. If, if you have read the book or listened to the book or whatever, um, you know, let us know what you thought, things that stood out to you. Um, cause it's always awesome to hear that. And, and I will say, um, you know, the fact that this book has sold out of multiple bookstores and, and, and you know, obviously, you know, Greg, your your spouse is literally works in that world and sounds like can attest to the reality that this book is, you know, just blowing off of shelves, um, I think gives a really bright future to the to these uh, to this series. Yeah, she's she works at a bookstore that um, is it's a local independent bookstore that does not cater to sci-fi fans at all, really. Like it's not geared for that. It's, it's, you know, a a kind of more, gosh, I feel like saying upscale kind of hurts science fiction, but it's, it's certainly like a literary bookstore, I'll just say. Um, And they ended up featuring it in their newsletter and they had uh, sold out of their copies by nine 30 that first morning and had people calling all day for them. She is the buyer. So her job when that happened was immediately to call the publisher and they were already sold out at the, at the publisher. So it was going to take even longer to get it restocked. Um, We've now since then seen it. I think it was number one on the New York times bestseller list the first week and maybe it dropped to number two, the second week. Um, so it's doing better business than just about any other Star Wars book in recent memory. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's impressive. I, I didn't, I knew it was selling well. I didn't realize it was that well. Wow. Uh, I saw, I saw a lot of tweets about the middle grade book, the, a test of courage, which I just want to echo Carl, Justina Ireland really did a, a wonderful book, um, as well. And, um, that book, you know, a lot of like, targets and um walmarts wouldn't normally stock that book and so it drove people online and a lot of people were getting their orders at those retailers canceled because they were already you know running out of their copies of that so i suspect that that was a smaller print run just because it's a middle grade book and not an adult book but it also is my guess that it way outsold what it was expected to um it only hit number two on the children's literature chart but number one was a J.K. Rowling Harry Potter book, and that's pretty dang hard to compete with, I think. So um, it's it's a really good achievement still. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Well, I will say because, yeah, I ordered mine. Um, I did the like Target store pickup and I, I and I texted you, Greg, because I was like, I still haven't gotten the confirmation that I can come pick it up. And you're like, check the online order. So then when I did, it's like no longer in stock, but we can ship you a copy. So I just did that option and they shipped it for free. So it was fine. Um, um, but If anybody's looking for that one, you can look at Justina Ireland's um, social media. I ordered it. She works with a small bookstore in Baltimore that ships at least nationwide, maybe worldwide. Um, and she'll sign uh, your book for you and at the bookstore and then they'll ship you a copy. So oh, that's nice so little cool. way to get something special. Yeah, that's so cool. Oh, that's cool. Um, awesome. Well, as you can tell, 
all three of us love Light of the Jedi and are very amped for High Republic. Um, so um, our poll is for obviously those of you who have read the book. Um, an apology if you've stuck with us this whole episode and you've not read the book. Um, <laughs> hopefully we you're because we didn't really put the whole plot together. Hopefully you still are feeling excited to either go read it or or get it on Audible. Um, yeah, we, we really bounced around the entire book. You know, no particular orders. So. <laughs> But uh, anyway, so for for our poll next week, though, we want to know who your favorite character was from this book. Um, and again, if, if you've not read it, I, I apologize because that makes it kind of impossible to participate in this poll. But hey, maybe just listening to this, you're like, you know what? When you talked about that character, I like that. That's going to be my favorite. So you feel free to do that, too. Um, but uh, yeah. Um, yeah, so that'll be our poll for, for next week. And also uh, next week, we're going to do another giveaway. Uh, like I said, we have an extra copy of Light of the Jedi um, that I a couple weeks ago offered up. If anybody wanted to just borrow it and try to do this kind of little like lair share library book, I got absolutely zero interest in that, So, which is totally fine. Um, but if you are someone who's interested in reading this book um, – or just want to have a copy yourself for whatever reason. Uh, same rules as our last giveaway. I will make a, a post on our social media at the end of the week. All you got to do is like it, share it, retweet it. You know, you know the drill, um, and you'll be entered a chance to win a copy of Light of the Jedi. It's a great book. You won't be disappointed. <laughs> oh. um, be- uh, before we go, uh, Greg, if folks want to. Um, keep up with you and your musings on star Wars, uh, star Wars collecting. Obviously you're kind of, um, wonderful at knowing the world of star Wars collecting and helping people find what they're looking for. How can they stay in touch with you? Oh, thank you. Uh, so, uh, I am Ion Cannon on Twitter. So that's E Y E O N C A N O N. Um, and I'm also the same on Instagram. My Instagram is minimal pictures of my kids and really just Star Wars collectibles or sometimes my kids doing cute things with Star Wars collectibles. <laughs> um, and, I, and I always love to hear from people on Twitter, so you can always shoot me a message there um, to talk about Light of the Jedi or, or anything else. Um, I'll also just note, um, I had something kind of cool happen last week, I think a, a week ago now, which is the Hollow Chronicles podcast um, featured my collection on their Show Me Your Collection. Um, so um, it's in my Twitter, uh, or you can just go to their website. They're part of the Beyond the Blast Doors network. So btbd.net, and, and there's a, a page that goes through my full collection and shows you my Star Wars room. And it's really been fun to have people respond to that. So check it out. Nice. Very cool. Uh, and Carl, if people want to uh, weigh in on our poll, tell us their thoughts on Light of the Jedi or ask any questions that they may have about the High Republic that we might be able to help facilitate or anything else. Where can people contact us, sir? Um, well, we are also on Twitter at Wampas Lair. You can find us on Facebook, Wampas Lair Podcast. Uh, email us at Wampas Lair Podcast at gmail.com. We're on Instagram, the underscore Wampuslayer, and uh, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash Wampuslayer. Excellent. Well, uh, any final thoughts before we close down this episode, gentlemen? We are all the Republic. We are all... Me too, you bastard. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, For Light and Life, which is also High Republic. There we go. (laughs) 
All right. Well, that will wrap up this episode of the Wampus Lair podcast. Thank you, everyone, for listening to episode 411, Light of the Jedi. For Carl, my buddy Greg, I'm Jason. And we'll see you next time here in the Wampus Lair. <laughs>